Open your scriptures to Psalm 34. And good morning, and let me add my welcome to Matt's. If you're our guest this morning, we're delighted to have you with us as we worship the Lord, both in spirit and in truth. Well, this past Thursday was the first day of fall, and the weather reflects that. So this, this can't be Summer Through Psalm series. This is a transition series. This will be the second time in my almost six years here with you, uh, pastoring here, that we'll look at this psalm. And I thought this psalm provided a great transition as we move into, after our Coffee Connect time, to a time of corporate praise and testimony. Psalm 34 really sets the platform and invites us to come and worship. And we're going to look at that. It's going to be heavy on the front end because of that. And then we're going to look at the latter part of that, make application. Um, but most of the most of the sermon is going to be on the first couple verses. If you'll look in your scriptures, you'll see an inscription on top of Psalm 34. Now these inscriptions are not inspired. That means they're not part of the original text, but they were added and they were kept because they do provide some help. They do provide a historical setting believed to be by some of the older writers and collectors of these scriptures to place it in a specific context. And you'll see that it says this. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Now that draws our attention back to 1 Samuel 21. So David the runaway son-in-law of King Saul sought for refuge among none other than the king of Gath. Now you have to understand, king of Gath is the king in the Philistine territory where David, who is now fleeing, killed their former champion. Former because Goliath is dead. And now the situation in David's life has become so difficult that he is now fleeing the safety of his own country, and he's trying to seek asylum among the very king whose champion David had killed. David comes to Nob. I mean, this will just be a real quick historical sketch. 1 Samuel 21.1. I have you in Psalm 34, so I'm going to run through this quickly. This is the, grand, the great-grandson of Eli. He comes to Ahimelech. And Ahimelech gets nervous because David's alone. David is a mighty captain. David is usually traveling with weapons and with soldiers. David arrives alone. And the scriptures say this, Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Well, rumors had probably already spread that King Saul was unstable. King Saul was an angry, spear-throwing king. He even threw one at his own son. David understood that Saul was intent on killing him on sight. David asks Ahimelech for food. The scriptures state, now then, David says, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand. So the priest gave him the holy bread. Okay, children, that's holy bread, H-O-L-Y. Not H-O-L-E-Y, like holes in your bread. I, I had to make sure of the spelling myself. I don't think I've ever used holy. And all it brought up were jeans. Right? For sale at Macy's, holy jeans. So that's the term. This is 
holy bread, the bread of presence in a very holy place. Jesus will actually use this reference in rebuking the Pharisees' legalistic tendencies. He's going to go back to this historical snapshot and rebuke them for their strictness on the Sabbath day because they had put ceremonial cleanness above human need. And Jesus rebukes them for that. David asks for a weapon. Of course, the only weapon there is Goliath's sword. And David says, well, there's none like that. Give that to me. So here goes David with Goliath's sword marching into the Philistines seeking asylum. Doeg, the chief of Saul's herdsmen standing nearby, he's an opportunist leader, hears that Ahimelech aids this refugee king, son-in-law, and he goes back and he tells of the story. It says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdmen. The information that he will carry back will lead to the killing of 85 priests. Doeg commands the guards to kill the priests. Guilt by association. They refuse because they fear God. Doeg himself slays all 85 priests. Very sad day. You can understand the instability and the danger of the situation. Only Abiathar would survive. Abiathar would run out into the woods He would find David, he would tell him of that report, and from that report, David composes Psalm 52. We're not going to look at Psalm 52, you can just make a note of that and read that later as far as a historical setting of that psalm. 1 Samuel 21 continues, and it says, And the servants of Achish said to him, Okay, so here comes David seeking asylum from the king of Gath, and the servants of Achish said to the king, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? And they quote the song. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. That would have been a great song if you're in Jerusalem. But not when you're standing at the gates of your enemy. And that song now has made it all the way into enemy territory and you're seeking asylum and they repeat back to you this sort of praise chorus. Verse 12 of 1 Samuel 21. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid. I don't know what you think about David. I mean, we, we often hear about David confronting Goliath and he did. How David's character outshone that of the character of King Saul, here you have a mighty warrior who stepped out one-on-one with an incredible champion, Goliath, and it says here he is much afraid. Seasons of life change, don't they? What happens next is unexpected and on an initial read, a little disappointing. So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. He made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? I mean, whatever you thought of the Philistines before, they do have discernment and wisdom. 
He says this, and this, 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 this little statement makes me laugh. Do I lack madmen in my kingdom that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? But David got away. And the king of Gath was not the refuge David had hoped for, but God would be the sure and safe refuge David had learned him to be. It says this in 1 Samuel 22.1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, it is either in the cave after this pretend madman episode that David penned Psalm 34, or it was probably shortly after when he was recalling those events. Now, we read Psalm 34, and it just becomes white noise to us because we hear, boast in the Lord with me, and sing, and praise continually, and taste and see, and we see it on little placards at craft stores, and we hang it above our kitchen sink, and, we, and it becomes just so common that we don't understand exactly, perhaps, what David is inviting us to do and in what context he is inviting us to do it in. C.S. Lewis stated, We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. And so David is inviting you, inviting me to come and express our delight in God. Look at Psalm 34, verse 1. First three verses, this is going to be the heavy part of the sermon this morning, and I I, I want us to really have this sort of description impressed in our mind. Boast in the Lord and magnify Him. Boast in the Lord and magnify Him. Psalm 34, 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. Is that what we're doing? I had to ask myself, is that what I'm doing? Since last Sunday afternoon until now, does that describe my life? Just take those words. Bless. Did I bless? Did I praise? Did I boast in? Did I magnify? Did I exalt God? Well, let's see. Let's let's look at the meaning of these words and let's let the weight of Scripture to press down on the last seven days of our life. To bless the Lord means to kneel down, reverently acknowledge, honor, and speak well of Him. Now, does that that define our heart to the Lord in the last seven days? Praise means proclaiming the excellence of. Does that, proclaiming the excellence of God, Explain the last seven days of my life, of your life. See, but verse 1 says more. I want you to look at it. Look at verse 1. It says, I will bless the Lord. What's the next phrase? At all times. 
His praise shall, what's the next word? Continually be in my mouth. Which means when a person reverently bows before the Lord and speaks well of Him, and when, he is sing, when, when they are singing and, and speaking of His excellencies continually and fully, there is no room for sinful speech. If you fill a glass of water completely to the top, there is no room for iced tea. Something will spill out. When we praise continually, when, his, when we boast in Him at all times, there's a sense of the fullness of a thing so that there is no room for anything else. When I'm bragging on the Lord and when I'm singing of His excellencies, there's no room for complaining. Very interesting. So when a person blesses and praises continually, that's called devotion. Devotion is consistent love and loyalty with an undivided heart. So there's no room for evil speaking or sinful judgmentalism. This is exactly what James says in James 3. He says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So here's a quick heart check, right? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth, the mouth speaks. Did we bless God this week and speak evil of others? Well, James would stand here, if he could, and he would say, brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Did you ask your children to praise and trust God while at the same time you were critical in your spirit and controlled by the fear of people? My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Did you boast in other people or things or activities or accomplishments or status more than you boasted in God? More than you boasted in God. It's natural for us to praise things. But did you do that more than you praised God? More than you spoke excellently of Him? Brothers, these things ought not to be so. Look at verse 2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. If you look up the meaning of that word, that word boast, because typically boast, when we think of that, has more of a kind of a selfish, arrogant context in the way we have used it. Um, the word boast also means cheer. I cheer in God. You have to be, I want to be careful here that it's because you, you have this, this reverent behavior that is cheering the excellencies of God. So we could ask this what did you cheer about this week? And you know, I don't know how you express cheer. Um, when I realized I passed a very hefty theological exam at the end of my undergraduate. And I thought I had failed. And I went and I checked my little post office box, hand shaking. They make this like ominous announcement. You will find the results in your post office box. You know, and so I went there under cover of night. Because I'm the ministerial class president and that put incredible weight upon... Did you hear who failed? So I went down in cover of night, opened up my post office box. And it doesn't tell you, you know... 
how you did on all the marks. It's, it's simply, you know, pass, fail. And I opened it up and, and I saw, you know, one of the lights was coming in, a little post office box, and, I, and it said pass. I don't know how David danced, but I, I danced in the little post office box room under cover of night. I cheered that. That was a good thing to cheer about. Such a weight off of my heart. But here David says, my soul makes its boast. I, I cheer in the Lord. We don't have a problem cheering. I've watched some of you cheer. I watched my family cheer. We even argue about things we place value upon. Right? Is Chevy better than Ford? People actually argue about those things. When we all know it's Toyota. Right? No. And we argue about sports teams, right? And are, there's a running rivalry in our family. You know, is it the Broncos or the Packers? Your minds were already slightly distracted anyway, so we're just going to speak truth into that. And so you've got that, that tension. And I have one, one offspring that if, that if the Packers lose, guess who he's hoping loses to? Somehow it offsets the injury. And I don't understand the fallenness of the heart there. We are extravagant about what we praise. Look at verse 3. Oh, magnify. So he's, he's boasting in. He's cheering. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. To magnify means to pr- promote the greatness of something. Or simply to make big. You can't make God any bigger than He is. But when the world, Monday through Saturday, and especially on Sunday, is trying to make the greatness of God become minuscule, God's people have the power to magnify Him again. We are responsible to make God big in the eyes of a world where God has become so small. No, we can't make Him bigger than He is, but we can lift Him up and exalt Him. That's another word that David uses here. Let us exalt, verse 3, let us exalt His name together to lift His name up to promote His greatness. So allow me to use a familiar illustration because we can so easily relate to it. And don't interpret this wrongly. Don't interpret this as though I'm against all sports, even though I do believe sports has become an idol in our culture. And if you fail to see that, I fear that you've been blinded to the, to the undertow of our culture's current. But let me explain what happened last Sunday and what is happening again right now. Let's just take the first five words of the first three verses. Bless, praise, boast, magnify, exalt. Today, stadiums will fill up again and they will boast in a favorite team. We naturally do that. We're wired for worship. That's our hard wiring. That's our default setting. We worship. They wear their jersey. They spend money extravagantly on food and drink. They drink out of cups with logos on it. They have great emotion. They celebrate the kickoff. Rarely are they late. They want to arrive early for the pregame show. All this is, is what David is telling us to do vertically. God's creation naturally does horizontally. 
Last week, for example, when Von Miller stripped the ball from Andrew Luck, tens of thousands of the, I had to research this, 76,125 people who fill our stadium erupted. They stood up, lifted their hands, spilled drinks on each other, and cheered. That's what they did. Side note, yet when some people in here reverently cheer God, choose to lift their hands to God, which is a term used in Psalms, others silently condemn them. Yet if it's a genuine expression of their heart, they have the Psalms' permission to do so in worship. That may not be for everyone. That may, some of you are more quiet and reserved by nature. It doesn't mean you're not worshiping emotionally either. But neither does the person who's showing it more vibrantly, more, more externally. It does not mean theirs is disingenuous either. Because what you have here, we do this at ball games, right? A couple years ago, you could tell I was the parent of one of my boys' very first play of the very first game. This guy just launches it. My son grabs it out of the air. Was that the only pass you... No, just kidding. So, and, 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 he, and he ran it in for a touchdown. And I went, I went, contrary to my normal operating mode, I went ballistic. And... Every, that whole stadium of 27 people knew I was the dad. <laughs> they, they, they knew I was the dad. It was obvious. Why? I think I ran part of the way down the field with him. Right? And, and, and I was doing that. You'll never see, I don't think you'll ever see me on the second pew do this. I was like, yeah. You know, I was just going crazy. What was I doing? I was expressing something. That's what David invites us to do. We do it reverently. We bow before the Lord with, with careful reverence, but extravagantly. If you keep looking, look at again verse 3. And this is the invitation. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Make Him big. Exalt, lift up His greatness and let us exalt His name together and that's what we do in a world where God is minimized and eclipsed by a materialistic and entertainment culture. We invite one another. We do this on the Lord's Day morning. We purposely gather together and we make Him big again. We sing about Him. We look at His Word. We pray to Him. We read His Word without any comment. We encourage one another. We reflect His hands and His feet to each other. We are the body of Jesus Christ. What's beautiful is David doesn't just stop there, but he moves into specific instances in verse 4. Now recall the historical context. He goes to seek asylum where safety would not be had. He plays the madman. He escapes to a cave. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord. Now previously he sought who? The king of Achish. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried 
And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Those who seek God like David find him. Remember 1 Samuel 21 said that David was greatly afraid. And here he says, the Lord delivered me from all my, all my fears. And God can deliver you from all your fears. Fear can be crippling. You're running away from a place that has always been a safe haven. You've always found safety in it. And now you're running into a foreign land to a foreign king. And you have to play like you're insane to escape. And he runs into the cave, and in the safety of that cave, he cries out and realizes God is a refuge. God is safety. The word is shamed here, interesting, it means you will never be disappointed at what you hoped for when your hope is in him. You're not going to be ashamed. So seek him. So why don't we look to him? Why are we so disappointed? Perhaps because we have magnified and exalted and boasted in other things and we have failed to seek the Lord. We have found security in other people, in other things, rather than in the one where we can find true safety. Verse 6, this poor man cried. It's probably a personal reference to David, but it's certainly the basis upon which all people approach God. Listen to this, Psalm 9:12. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Psalm 18, verse 2, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Proverbs 3, 34, Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. If you read these verses, what you'll understand is the posture of God is different towards people depending upon their posture towards him. To the humble, his posture is he gives favor. To the proud, his posture is, he will bring them down. So we merely need to wait on the Lord. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. That phrase indicates this is most likely the one who has revealed himself already through redemptive history. This is the angel of, of Yahweh. There are invisible realities all around us. Therefore, we walk by faith and not by sight. Those who seek the Lord will find Him. He's going to move now into the admonitions of the godly. Look at verse 8. Because those who have tasted the blessings of deliverance, those who have enjoyed God stepping into their life, and not just in a theoretical way, but in a very real practical way, when that happens, when you know Him relationally, experientially, in a very real, authentic way, you want others to experience that too. If he's simply merely an academic idea far off on the horizon or something theoretical that, well, I just grew up learning about that, you know, so, so everything you know about God is what everybody else has told you about God, which is good to a degree, but God wants a relationship. Paul says that I may know Him. This isn't just... The knowledge that you gain by studying. This is knowledge by experiencing a relationship. When that happens, you want to invite people into that. Look at Psalm 34, verse 8. This is the invitation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man. That's our, that's our, that's our, the title of our series, Blessed. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God created us with amazing senses. Created us with touch, taste, sight, hearing, smell. You ever tried to determine what's your favorite? Maybe it's at any given time. You know, what I'm about to eat, it's probably taste. But then you really can't taste without the sense of smell. So all these senses work together. And David is appealing to your senses. And he invites us, taste and see. He appeals to two different senses. Come in and experience this. Some of you don't know what fried caterpillars taste like. And just by me saying that, you've already decided something, most of you. And you've decided, I will never know, right, what fried caterpillars taste like. Because you reached a conclusion based upon your, 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 your imagination used a few senses. You can see them all shriveled up in oil, legs in the air, big head, orange head, huge, crunchy, but huge. Okay, and you've decided based on what you think those are horrible. And yet, you have people that are members of this church, I'm not one of them, that really enjoy them. Legs and all. Because they have exercised more of their senses. They smelled them frying. It smells like french fries. And I don't think it smells like french fries, but they smell. And then they lift it up and there's texture. They're touching them and then they taste them. And they came to the conclusion by using more of their senses, opposed to my conclusion, that they like them. Okay? David is appealing to your senses. Think about that for a second. God just delivered David out of an incredible situation, out of an incredible hardship. And he invites you and he says, taste and see that God is what? Taste and see that God is what? Good. Have you doubted that recently? You look around at the world, you read the current events, and David's invitation is going to be, oh, no, 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 no. Taste and see that your God is good. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. For those who fear Him have no lack Interesting, he calls attention to the, the young lions. The young lions are known for their strength. But even young lions, in a time of drought, can suffer want of food and water. We've seen lions try to go up to a watering hole in the middle of a drought that is filled with crocodiles. Even the strongest of beasts, though they may be, can suffer want. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But in contrast to that, in contrast to some of God's greatest creatures, look at the next phrase. Verse 10, second part. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Oh, 
Taste and see that he is good. And those who fear him lack no good thing. He's going to say this two different times. They have no lack. They lack no good thing. And then he, he's moving towards the conclusion now. And after he invites you to come magnify the Lord with him, he's going to instruct you now. He's going to, he's going to say, come learn from me. Look at verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, or the idea there is fullness of days, the quality of days, that he may see good? He's going to teach us now. How do you live a life like that? What does the fear of the Lord look like? What does good days, what do good days look like? Learn from me, children. Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you enter into that experience of knowing that He is good, now let me teach you. Come, learn from me. Evil speaking must be avoided. If you want to really taste and see that God is good, you want to enter into this experience, fear Him, but that fear will result in keeping your tongue from evil and keeping your lips from speaking deceit. Great morning prayers. Very last verse of Psalm 19, verse 14. If you would just speak this to the Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. Come, taste and see that He is good. And avoid evil speaking. Secondly, verse 14. Forsake evil in all its forms and do good. Turn away from evil and do good. Do you suffer want like the young lions? Are your days full of trouble? David would say, come, taste and see that God is good. Turn away from evil and do good. This is what Job says in Job 28, 28. And he said, he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Proverbs 3, 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 16, 17, the highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. The same theme, turn away, turn away. So when Jesus comes in Mark 1, verse 15, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn away, repent, and believe. That's the invitation. And then he says this in verse 14, seek peace and pursue it. Do you know God's people are characterized by peace? People that have entered into a knowledge of God with their senses. It's not just a theoretical concept, but they experience Him. They have tasted. They have seen those are the ones who seek peace and pursue it. That brings us to the final section. And here you have side by side the righteous and the evildoers as we've seen in Psalm 7 and Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are 
toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Do you know spiritual people can have broken hearts and be crushed in their spirit? Godly people can enter into a true crisis of faith. Here you have persecution next to divine protection. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Okay, so that's, that, should, that should just like clear up all the mystery of our life right there. Many, so don't be, don't be surprised by that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And it's not just a spiritual protection, it's a physical protection. Look at verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. Just highlight this last part. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now you have to remember as we move into the New Testament, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. Jesus Christ came to forgive you of your sin based upon faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is a gift of grace. All we could say, I mean, this is, this is an incredible, as you look forward, an incredible New Testament salvation concept. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Right? Romans 5 verse 1. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in who? Right? Not in the cave in Adullam, but those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question this morning as we close is, are you in Christ? Well, what does that mean? You have called out to Him as your rescuer and redeemer. You are in distress because of sin. You are in trouble because of the penalty of sin. You are weary because of the guilt of sin. And there is one who stands and compels you to believe because of the work that He accomplished on the cross through His death and His resurrection that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Safe. Refuge. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Taste and see that the Lord is good.